I'd like you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6 as we get going in our uh, third lesson in all of life series. We've um, tried to pick a month where we could talk about things that were pretty common to the average Joe, and uh, maybe we hit some of them. Hopefully, we hit the most of you. Uh, first week, we talked about marriage, and um, as prevalent as that is, I'm certain that some of you either aren't prepared for marriage or... Uh, you're not uh, into that maybe, and so it doesn't necessarily apply the, what God says, the role to you right now, or possibly last week's discussion on parenting, you know, maybe you just can't see that happening, so uh, helpful for some, but not for all. But the subject matter we're talking about today is for everybody. It's money and finances and what God thinks about it. And, and so, uh, you know, I was thinking about this when I was writing this down, as personal as marriage and children are. I have a greater ten- possibility of offending you today than any other time uh, because we're talking about your money. And uh, there's lots of reasons why when we get close to finances, it gets a little bit uncomfortable. We live in America and we are red, white, and blue independent. That's our business and nobody's business. And, and so you just might not be comfortable talking about uh, the topic of finance. Other reason is possibly pride in, in this sense that you... You've got no issues with finance. There's more than enough, and, and uh, I don't know as much about finance as you know, and so I'll not listen. To some of us, we're insecure. We don't have any, and we've been just terrible managers of our money, and it's just another guilt complex we're going to go through, and nobody wants that. And then there's a possibility that the church has always had, well, the last 30, 40 years has had a pretty rough reputation on what it does with its money. You know, a lot of scandals in the world about how people who claim Christ respond to finances and scandals and things like that. So you might think the church should stay out of that, but, but we can't. We live in a country where uh, debt is common. Hoarding is even more common. We live in a country where um, the love of money is the American way. And the subject of love for money isn't a gory sin. It's not like crime or violence or adultery or blasphemy. This, this issue of how to be bad stewards in our, or being bad stewards in our finances is what I would call the acceptable sin because everybody's doing it. Everyone has a, their own independent way of which to respond to that, that subject matter. You might say something like, yeah, I know what the Bible says about finance, or I think I do, but everyone fudges on that, don't they? Don't they just kind of negate that part of the scriptures? After all, it is the way it is. It's just the, way, the American way. $3.2 trillion of consumer debt. We live way above our means, at the edge. There is some half a trillion credit cards in people's pockets just in America and $882 billion worth of debt on those cards. When they talk about how, the, how people respond to charitable giving, only 5% of the total give 10% to any kind of uh, church or ministry. 80% of Americans who even participate in charitable giving only give 2%. I found a stat that I thought was pretty amazing and contrast, compare. Um, if um, you look at today, the Christians today who are giving per capita is 2.4, they say. In the Great Depression, it was 3.5. People who had far less far less standard of living, and yet they were able to think about giving in ways that we're not. Before you start considering your own kind of giving and, and possibly uh, kind of warming up to this conversation, let me just tell you that uh, right up front that I don't think we have a money problem. The discussion of money always goes back to one predominant thing, and it's the heart. 
It's how the Bible responds to money. It says the issues with money, however good or bad they might be, is always directly connected to the heart issue. And what deals with the heart? Church, Holy Spirit, little hint, the scripture. The God deals with the heart of man. God is the one that transforms the dead, unresponsive heart unto life. He's the one who comes after us in ways to bring conviction and encouragement in us. And so its point is to be kind and leading us to repentance and, and purity. And so nobody knows our hearts like God does. The scriptures make it really clear that he knows our hearts better than we know our own. And so, and he knows And clearly by the quantity of scriptures that talk about money and finances and possession, God knows um, our hearts are affected by it. Materialism, money. By the way, you probably already know this, but the word is filled with instructions on the subject matter. There is um, 38 parables in total that Jesus told. Parables were stories used to illustrate spiritual truths. 16 of those were dealing with finances or possessions. Something he had to say about it clearly coming to deal with the heart of man, and he, he talked about that. One out of every 10 verses in the gospel deals with money, 288 of them. The scriptures in total deal with 500 verses on prayer, 500 verses on faith, and over 2,000 on money and possessions. God says a lot about money, and here's why. He doesn't have a money problem, we do. We have a heart problem, and so the scriptures are blunt when it comes to this issue of what we find our affections in and our joy in. The Proverbs, the wisdom writer, talks about debt over and over again, how crippling that whole perspective is, and yet that's our culture. Solomon, who uh, was the richest man who ever lived, as well as the wisest man who ever lived, according to scriptures, says that money can't buy you happiness. I suppose a guy who had enough to find that out might have something to say about that to us. The Old Testament law, in that, God established the tithe, the 10% giving to his people as a way to support God's ministry, God's work, and to remind God's people that all of their stuff belonged to him, not them. By the time you get to Malachi, God is making the accusation against the people of Israel, and he uses these words, that they're robbing him by withholding their tithe, and the reason why is because they were looking for ways to avoid giving. Lots of excuses. And so God said, listen, you, you, you don't get the point. You know this is all mine, and so you're stealing from me. That's what he says in Malachi. New Testament, Jesus says that you can't serve both God and money. There's a story that Jesus encounters with a rich young ruler. Rich, rich is emphasized here. Rich young ruler who came to Jesus to ask the ultimate question, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus knew his heart issue, went right for it, and said, listen, sell all your stuff, give it away, and follow me. His quick math said, that's too expensive for me, and so he left Jesus sad to hold on to his riches. So the Apostle Paul, over again, reminds us that church is to be a cheerful responder to finances and giving. And so to clarify all these things that I think the Bible has to say about finances, I want to hone in on two verses, okay? And it's here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And it deals with the heart. The core of the story when it comes to how God deals with us, expects of us, and what it says about us, the heart issue on finances. So let me read this, we'll pray, and I've got just two points to make from from this passage, and then I'll give you some tips as we close. But here's what Paul tells Timothy and the church, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, 
into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Pray with me, please. God in heaven, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the directness of your word and how precise it is in sifting us and discerning us in our hearts and our intentions, the ways in which we choose to find another satisfaction. I pray, God, today that your word would be clear, your Holy Spirit would speak, and your people would respond. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to look at verse 10. Here's the first point that Paul makes. Number one is money is not the problem. Money's not the problem. He's what he says. Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money in and of itself is amoral. It's not good. It's not bad. In fact, if you were just to sit and be honest and say, what good things can money do? You could run out of room on a piece of paper saying it would do lots of good. It can provide for my family, put a roof over our head. It can, it can provide food for, for our stomachs. It can take care of needs. It can help the poor. It can be the cause of some cure for some kind of disease. It can uh, meet the world's concerns. It can support ministries, things that do gospel work, and it's not bad. And by the way, it's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to have a lot of money. It's not wrong to live in a nice house. It's not wrong to get paid well. It's, it's not wrong to have nice things or to enjoy those nice things that you have. The problem that Paul tells Timothy is when we love our things, when we love our money. The affections for it. Now, I have to define love because it, many times we use love to describe a positive. This, in this case, Paul is talking about a counterfeit gospel. So let me explain this. Love. In Paul's mind, this is what it means to love. Money. It means to make it the driving force in your life. It's your motivation. It, it is your uh, contentment. It is your security. It is your peace. It is your joy. It is your identity. Do I need to go on? Now, that list right there, that small list I gave you, should have sounded strangely familiar to you because it's the definition of worship. You could use the same phrases and the same sentences and the same words to describe a right mind towards worshiping the Creator. He is my joy. He is my peace. He is my contentment. He is my motivation. He is my identity. He has the power to bring happiness. Same, same idea pointed towards money and possession, right? So, what you need to know about worship is that it only has room for one. You can't equally value something else comparatively to God and find all worship. In fact, the scriptures make it really clear that worship, the whole concept of worship is an exclusive thing. So let me prove it to you. If we flip back over to Matthew um, in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching about treasures and talking about where to invest our money, our possessions, our, our identity, our motivations, our security, We'll make some points about this, but this is Jesus' classic teaching on this treasures in heaven. This is what he says in verses 19 to 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now skip down to verse 24. No one, no one can serve two masters. 
For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus said it. If your affections and your security and your identity and your self-worth are wrapped up in what you have, then Jesus says there's no room for him. It's one or the other. You can't love both God and money that way. Now, remind, just to remind you a little bit, in this series that we've been going through, I've been telling you about these imperatives, these commands, these observations from the scriptures to us aren't there in case we need them. They're addressing inclinations in us, our tendencies. So wives and husbands, that whole role thing, husbands to kind of lord it over and wives to take over and kids not to obey and fathers to exasperate, that whole thing was commanded against the inclinations in the sinful heart. Just like this word from Paul to Timothy to us on don't love stuff, don't love money, because our heart wants to go there. The sinful flesh wants to go there. The, the flinch is to do that for all the reasons I mentioned, for the satisfaction that it brings and the comfort it brings, the peace supposedly that it brings. So here's what Jesus says in, in Matthew 6. Don't treasure stuff here because it's foolish. The Greek for foolish means stupid. It's a stupid investment because it can't deliver. That's what he says. It can't deliver. You can't take it with you. I, I read a story this week about a, a um, mortuary in Las Vegas, I think, where they supply suits for the men that die that don't have, the families don't have clothes for them, and all their suits are fake suits with, with, with no pockets. It's a great picture for what it's like to prepare for the future. You can't put it in your pocket. You can't take it with you. You can't sort out your collection as you go to heaven or go to judgment. You can't, you can't take it with you. So Jesus says, listen, you can't store up in heaven, so don't, don't plan for it here when you're thinking clearly. And he says, by the way, just think about this. It can't last. It doesn't survive anyway. I went to the Barrett-Jackson auto auction last week. Ridiculous amount of things I'll never have but I didn't see any rust. Not a bit, but here's what I know. Rust will win. Millions and millions and millions, probably billions of dollars spent to try to restore metal objects that roll, okay? But rust will win. And, and you know that. Your house is full. I got four, three now, grown men living in my house. I'm gonna have to rebuild the thing when they move out. There's not a wall that's straight. There's not anything that doesn't have a crack in it or broken or bent. It's all destroyed. I got to fix that. <laughs> and by the way, Jesus says, it can't deliver. You have affections for things and money for the reasons that you do, whether it brings an identity to you and a self-worth to you or security in you or a hope in you or a joy in you. And it never, it never ever delivers. It can't do that. Let me take you to another one. Go back to that First Timothy passage, which is the point, the last point that I want to make in verse 10. Because Paul tells Timothy that love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And this is my second point. Wanting the wrong thing to be the ultimate thing always leads to trouble. Wanting the wrong thing to be the ultimate thing always leads to trouble. And in this case, we're talking about possessions and money. Okay? Now, We've got, to discuss, we've got to discuss and define what kind of trouble that Paul's talking about. And, and uh, I spent several hours this week digging through the words of these two verses. And uh, Paul has profound things and uh, 
devastating things to talk about um, when you love the wrong thing, expecting the ultimate and how you'll be disappointed. So I hope you cut me some slack this morning. I want to unpack the words of these verses. And I want to unpack them from verse 10 going backwards to verse 9. And just pull apart the words because they have really great meaning to describe what it is to, to love the wrong thing, to expect the wrong thing out of finances or money. So let's, let's do that. Let's pick it up in verse 10. For the love of money is the root. The word root means um, the cause of something. The, the picture is you plant corn, you get what? Corn. Here's what Paul promises. If you, if you plant an affection for money, a love for money, guess what it always produces? Evil. Not sometimes, not once in a while, not if you're a clever investor, not if you had a lot of money. If you love money, it produces evil, okay? Just so you know that. It's the root. It's where it comes from. Second word I want you to notice is the word evil. It's used to describe someone who retreats in battle. It's used of the coward, someone that's hated. It's, it's the one who is in trouble and gets others in trouble with him. It has this linear line that looks like this. Bad heart, bad character, bad conduct, trouble to others. That's what he says. Someone who loves gives that ultimate affection to possession and money and things like that always leads to evil that looks like this something wrong in here, and it doesn't just stay there. It affects the people around them. Cravings. You see it there? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving. The word craving means to stretch your out, yourself out for something. It has the idea of wanting something so bad that you hurt yourself to get it. It's, I always picture an athlete who is trying to catch a little ball who will tear his hamstrings or his knee ligaments, to catch a ball. This is kind of that picture. You want what you think it provides to such a degree. You stretch yourself to get it. Doesn't it sound like American debt? Does it sound like living in homes you can't and shouldn't have bought? Doesn't it sound like having cars you can't afford? Doesn't it sound like all the stuff you stretch yourself for to hurt yourself? The word wandered in verse 10 have wandered away from the faith. The word means seduced. <laughs> it's interesting. This isn't just aimlessly minding your own business, waking up one day and finding yourself far from God. This is a person who has bought the lie that this thing can do something that it can never, was never intended to do. This is making small steps away from trusting in the king because you trust in what you have or what you can make or what you own. It's seduced. You're, it's like the lure, picture of the lure. Like, it might make me happy, might make me feel safe. And look, won't it do this for them? And won't it do this? I'll, I swear, God, I'll do this with this pile of money. The small lure that seduces us. <clears throat> the, word, the phrase pierce themselves is better rendered self-inflicted wounds. In, in this case, we are our own worst enemy. We choose to love something to such a degree it brings harm to us. Sound familiar? It does to me. We don't use the word pangs much, but it just means sorrow and grief and sadness, distress for the body, mind, and soul. Doesn't sound like a lot of fun. And yet here's, here's how the apostle is telling Timothy to the church of the outcome of misplaced affections. You choose to go after things for their own value 
for what you think they'll give you, some need they'll meet in you, and they don't deliver, and you walk away crushed and chasing that lure the rest of your life, and it affects you and other people. That's what he says. Now, Paul couldn't be more clear on the type of trouble that he's talking about, but look at verse 9 for a second. Again, going backwards. This is what he says in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into the many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The word snare is, a, is just referred to as a, a trap you can't get out of. There's a permanency to this kind of decision you make to have money and possessions matter to you to the degree that it would merit a, a worship. This is true get out of, according to Paul. That word senseless there, right? We are fallen into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless. The word senseless means lacking intelligence. A better way to see this is uh, no governor. Let me try to explain this in a mechanical illustration. Um, most of your cars today have a computer in them. In the computer is a thing called a rev limiter. You with me so far? Everyone tracking? What that means is when you stomp on the skinny pedal, it won't blow up, okay? Some of you could just stomp on it, it would just rev, 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 and explode. Well, they've decided that you shouldn't have that control, and we'll put the control in the computer. So when you stomp on it, you'll just hit a spot where they say, it's not going to blow up, it's not going to hurt you, it's not going to hurt the car, it's just going to stay safe right there. This word, senseless, is a person who doesn't think, lacking intelligence, who has no governor, who just keeps going and going and hurting himself and hurting other people financially in his affections. The word desire is the same idea as lust of the flesh. It's what John told us to not love. It's the example of, of Genesis 3, the very first sin of man. Saw that it was good for the eyes. Lust of the flesh, the carnal heart. The carnal heart, it'll satisfy. It'll, it'll make me happy. And the last phrase that he mentions in verse 9 is the conclusion is ruin and destruction. Doesn't need a lot of definition. But let me give you a couple examples. What comes to mind is maybe Judas. Hey, 30 pieces of silver. Jesus. Going with the silver. Destruction. How about a story from um, Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira? Early church. It's described as nirvana, to be honest with you. These people loved God so much and they loved each other so much and they're just looking ways to meet each other's needs and they were all sharing what they had to care for one another's needs and supply each other's needs. And, and uh, so what they would do is they would sell things and, and bring things to the apostles that would distribute to the people of need. And one of these stories is Ananias who sold a piece of property and thought what he could do is give the impression to the church that he was really a, a worshiper and he could hold back some of the profit for himself and get away with it. And he stands before the apostle and God gives him discernment and says, you're holding out. Dead. And him and his wife, Sapphira, had compared notes and said, this is what we're going to tell him. Tell him we're bringing all of it. Tell them that we're really, we're really into it and we really love them and love God with our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. Tell them all that. And so she comes in not knowing that they just drug her husband out and she lies too and she dies. Now here's what I want you to know. God did not expect the early church to sell everything and give everything they had. They were doing that as a reflection to the gospel. There wasn't a command to follow. But here's why God dealt so harshly with Ananias and Sapphira. Because they were pretending to give. Because they were pretending um, to believe they were pretending to trust. They were pretending to worship. 
And in that very delicate beginning of the church, God wanted to purify it. So I know your heart. You're giving everyone the impression that it's cool and you get it and you love, but you really don't. You're still concerned that you, if you don't take care of your own needs, I won't meet them. You're still concerned that people will think better of you. You have a worship disorder. And so God deals with that. Destruction is what the text says, and ruin is what the text says. Now, there's a, a why question I think we have to ask or answer. Why does a love for money always equal trouble? <clears throat> I'll give you a couple answers. First of all, because you have, to, you have to turn from God to get it. It's like I said before, there is not room for two values that great. Love one, hate the other, period, period. And so in order to love money and possession to that great, it equals trouble because you lose the ultimate to have it. Does that make sense? You lose the ultimate relationship and provider and sustainer and lover of man to get it. You can only serve one master. And and just a warning, by the way, you don't need money to have this problem. I I know lots of people, I've talked to lots of people who, who don't have very much at all and they're obsessed with it. They hoard, they want, and they complain. This has nothing to do with quantity. You understand that? It's a heart issue. So if you're sitting here rich, thinking I'm getting too close to your security, lighten up because the Bible is dealing with that. If you have very little and you think it doesn't apply to you because if you had more, then you'd really be accused of loving money. That has nothing to do with either. It's a heart issue. And when you love something that much to either want what you don't have or hoard what you have that you think you earned, then you have a worship disorder. You can only love one. Here's the second reason why money always equals trouble. People who love money tend to use others and control others. They see people as a means to getting or having what they ultimately worship. They use people. We don't see them as the gospel says we should see them as people of need and people that we should care for and minister to. When, when you're converted at the moment in, in, in time in your life where you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, the Bible makes it really clear the Holy Spirit gives you gifts that in the concert of other Christians is the ministry to the body, and yet some people will make thousands of excuses why they're totally unconnected and unengaged in serving one another because they're out making the money. Not an excuse reason why it equals trouble is because like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5, 10, whoever loves money never has money enough. It's simply a waste of time. It's, it's, it's never enough. I learned this yesterday, practically. My wife came home. I worked really hard all day out in the garage like I always do. She came home and she bought me a box of kettle corn, a little box about this big. She goes, I bought this for you so over the next week or two, you can just nibble on it while I watch TV. It's gone. <laughs> it's all gone. <laughs> I want another one. I have no ability to control that. It's never enough. And that's, that's Solomon's point when it comes to possession and money. So let me just ask you a question. How much is enough? You know the answer, right? Just a little bit more. It's the human heart. It's never satisfied. Solomon, by the way, had everything. There wasn't anybody else who had more. And he concluded, it's never enough. It can't satisfy. I'm going to take you back to what Jesus said when he simply talked to the pragmatists and said, it's just a bad investment. It's just a bad investment. You can't, you can't take it with you. It, it won't last. 
That's why it equals trouble. You'll fill the loss. You'll suffer the loss. Expectations here, delivery here. Guess what's going to happen? Disappointment, sadness, possibly bitterness, clearly sin. So let me give you, in the time that we have left, um, a couple of tips. How do we control our money and our finances so they don't control us? Here's the first thing. It's like every other particular struggle, an inclination of the human sinful heart. Be honest with yourself. Now, this is not an always true situation. I'll describe what I mean by that. But mostly, mostly every time, whenever we have a problem with money, it can be traced to idolatry. Almost every time. Every time it's something we thought we needed to make us happy or thought we needed to to, to survive. And, and, And for the most part, it's typically idolatry. Now, I have to say for the most part because sometimes God interrupts with tragedy and things and suddenly there's debt and you didn't plan for it. I had an accident a couple of years ago and they thought it was bad and they put me in an ambulance and I'm still paying for a Band-Aid, okay? So sometimes it's outside of your control, um, but for the most part, and if you're honest, most of your money troubles comes directly back to idolatry. So here's what I want you to do. Be honest with it. The word, the magic word is confession. Confession is just simply agreeing with what God already knows. He knows For you to call it anything else doesn't make it better. Just say, God, you know what? I have this tendency to find joy, happiness, security, and purpose and identity in my stuff, in my possessions. You call that sin, so do I. Start with being honest about it. Just say it like it is. Let me give you another thing to do. If you're gonna control your money, not have it control you, then you need to learn learn the lesson of contentment. Here's what the scriptures say. Mostly it's Apostle Paul giving this instruction. In Philippians 4, 11 and 12, he says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and, and I know how to abound in every, any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I want you to remember that line that Paul said there, for I have learned. <laughs> Contentment is something you have to learn. Over time, I mean, I'm watching some of your heads nod when I'm talking about the disappointment of stuff. And most of you have lived long enough to go, I get it. I totally get it. That's exactly a biblical principle. So learn the lesson of contentment. Let me give you some practical ways to how to do that. One is practice um, saying no to your wants. Most of us have garages and closets full of wants, not needs, right? Like we build houses for our wants, not our needs. So just try this every once in a while. When you could have something that's in the want category, just say no, just because you can, just because you should. It's kind of the principle of moderation that the wisdom scriptures say in like Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. Here's what, here's what the writer says. God, give me just the right amount. If I have too much, my natural human tendency is to think I don't need you. If I have too little, I'm absolutely convinced I have to fix my problem. Neither one of those are gospel. Keep me in the middle. Keep me moderate. Say no to some of your wants. Listen to this passage, Hebrews chapter 13. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Remember that promise. 
when everything else inside of you tells you you got to fix it and you got to sort it out and you got to make it what it is and you got to bring all the you know, supply to it, remind yourself that God's love of you and interest in you and care for you is so much greater than your own. And he made a promise he can never quit on. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And in the illustration of what it means to care for his people, he says, look at the lilies of the field. They don't strive to clothe themselves. Look at the birds. They don't strive to feed themselves. And aren't you so so much more important than they? Of course you are. And, And you could have expounded. He could expound on that illustration. God loves you. He knows what you need and he knows when you need it. He knows what you can handle and when you're done. He knows it all. He knows every bit of it. And so here's what we do, right? We believe the promise over our situation every time. And if you believe the promise, then I think you'll make different decisions with money and stuff. And by the way, here's a heads up. Contentment is an easy thing to fake when you have a lot. Isn't it? And, and by the world standards, so you know, church, every person here, no matter how poor you think you are, is wealthy compared to the world. And I'm not trying to use that to get you to feel in a way that you shouldn't feel. I'm just saying to you, when you have so much, it's easy to fake it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm content. When you know, deep down, you still want, you still strive, you still use it for a reason not to contribute. You still use it. Here's another thing I want you to think about. These next handful ones I got from from Neil, so they're good. Resist resist the lies and believe the truths. Here's what I mean. Here's the lies. Here's the lies, and we've talked about some of these already. Money and possessions bring happiness, and they don't. Debt is expected and unavoidable, and a little more will solve the problem. Those are the lies, and they're not true. Because again, Solomon said what he said. There's never enough. But here are the truths. It starts in Genesis 1. God made everything, right? By the time you get to Psalm 24, he's declaring that everything he made belongs to him. No questions asked. And clearly in the New Testament, he says, and you simply serve as my stewards of my stuff. So do you see the math there? It all, he made it all. It all belongs to him. And we are his stewards of his possessions, his money. It doesn't belong to us. We talked about this with kids last week, didn't we? that our children even are the possession of the Lord. So let me give you a couple of quick one-liners and then I've got one punchline for you. So if you're going to control your finances so they don't control you, then you need to be a wise saver. I suggest to you slow and steady. Here's what the scriptures say in Proverbs. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Isn't that true? Slow and steady equals savings in a hurry to make a lot, to be done, to always ends in disaster. Be cautious debtor. This is my catchphrase for it. Debt shouldn't be this easy. In our world where everyone can bury themselves in a nanosecond, one little signature at one place and we can't pay it back, debt shouldn't be that easy. Here's what Proverbs says says again, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is a slave to the lender. Anybody know anything about slavery to loans? Anybody? Yeah. But here's the punchline. God's cure to love of money, ready, is generosity. 
being his agent with his finances and his possessions to other people. God's cure is generosity. Out of obedience, first of all, because this is what Paul said in, in this same passage, 1 Timothy 6, in verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. That's the imperative from, from Paul to Timothy when he's talking about money and the love of money. He says, make sure you tell them to be rich towards others. That's the command. So it's an obedience issue. The other thing I want you to know is that it is a it is a joyful heart that gives. There is a uh, particular passage I want to remind you of in, in 2 Corinthians. Great, great illustration for what we're talking about. Joy, giving out of joy, superabounds in crazy, ridiculous ways. It's the person who is not happy and not content and convinced they need something more that can't give in the generous spirit of which the gospel implies. Now, let me show you the illustration from the churches in Macedonia in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a true story. Again, in that early age of the church, how they're meeting each other's needs in the first four verses. Look what they says. Look what Paul says here. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their, por- their part. For they gave according to their means, and I can attest beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So picture what's going on here. He describes the Macedonian church as extreme impoverishment, right, who are begging for the opportunity to bless and encourage people who have more than they do. Nothing but the gospel does that. Nothing but a perspective on the king and his kingdom says, I want to do it. Why? Because the joy of giving is so much greater than having. It is so much greater than hoarding. I want to participate. And so if you really want to understand God's heart, then know the joy of that process, like the church in Macedonia. I think it's always good to remember, if you want to be this person who is generous, if you want to have it be the kind of the key to overcoming a love for money, then you have to focus. You have to focus on God's great generosity towards us. And the scriptures say in James, every good and perfect gift comes from who? The Father. Everyone. In fact, you say it this way, there isn't any good thing you have that he didn't give. So just think that through. If there's a bank account that has $10, a bank account that has $100,000, he gave it. If there's a car that has, you know, three bald tires and one good one, he gave it. If it's a, a, a great house, a small house, if it's a bicycle, it doesn't matter. He gave it. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father, right? And we have to have a, what I call gospel reflection to that. If God in his kindness and benevolence and grace came from heaven to earth to grant salvation to sinners who had no desire for that salvation on our own, and we simply become reflections of that grace to, to the world. And he gives us things, however much he gives us, and we just, we're generous. We love, we love him. We love him and, and we give out of that. It's a gospel reflection. And then the reality of it is, and we saw from Matthew 6, Jesus' encouragement, if you want to break the power that money and possessions have over your heart, then be a giver. It's the only certain solution. We're almost done, and I know I've gone three minutes over, so I apologize, but let me tell you this. I want you to know how the gospel sees you this morning. 
if you're one of those people that felt at all twingy in your heart talking about supply and need or affections for money and possessions, I want you to know how the gospel sees you. The gospel sees you as rich. And I'm not talking about coin. Here's, here's how the writer says it in 2 Corinthians. He who was rich became poor, that we who were poor might become rich. The picture, the wonderful picture of our greatest need, our deepest longings was met in Christ. We were impoverished so bad that the scripture says you are dead and unresponsive in your sin, and yet God came in grace and mercy, right? And made us rich. Here's how rich, here's how rich. Sons and daughters of God. Heirs to the kingdom. A focus about tomorrow. Life everlasting. Peace and joy, free from sickness. He's lavished all of it on us. You're already rich. So if you're striving for more because you think it equals joy and satisfaction and peace and contentment, I'm just telling you what you probably already know. It never delivers. And if you're a gospel citizen, if you love Jesus, I'm gonna tell you what God has promised. It isn't better than Christ in you and for you. Amen? Amen. That's the gospel. Let's pray together. God in heaven, I thank you so much for the truth that, that speaks to the heart's issues, issues that are so practical and so prevalent in our lives like money and possessions and how we feel about those things, the places we look for peace or how to cope with our anxiousness or our worry. God, I pray for those Christians in this room who really do love Jesus, that I pray that you'd give them the freedom from fear And God, I pray that you make us a generous people so that the world would see Christ. I pray this in his name, amen.